Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. In New York City, where we all live in little boxes on top of one another, ignore thy neighbor is a reasonable coping strategy. Live and let live, right? To each her own. That works pretty well for the most part, but what's the tipping point at which thy neighbor becomes simply too numerous, too loud, too different to ignore? I'd submit that whoever you are, wherever you locate yourself on that spectrum of tolerance, you too have your limit. In the mid-1980s, a group of people in Oregon discovered their tipping point when a massive commune moved in next door. The Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and thousands of his followers decided to build a city in the middle of nowhere, a utopia on earth. Only it was the middle of somewhere for the mostly white, mostly Christian residents of a tiny nearby town. It was home. And like most humans, they weren't too excited about the idea of radical, unexpected change in their own backyard. I, on the other hand, am very excited to be here today with the Way Brothers, Chaplin and McLean. They're the directors of the fabulous Netflix documentary, Wild Wild Country, which tells the very American story of this clash of cultures. There's God, guns, sex, and mutually exclusive concepts of liberty. Like I said, it's about as American as it gets. Welcome to Think Again. Thanks oh, for having thanks. us on, Jason. We appreciate it. So, I mean, first of all, after watching Wild Wild Country, I, I was a child of the 80s, and I realized that the only way I knew about the Rajneeshis was from, I think, Bloom County. <laughs> I think, Comic strip? Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 think that, I think that Bill the Cat uh-huh. in Bloom County at some point becomes the Bhagwan Shri Cat <laughs> Rajneesh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was like two strips that he did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah this, I saw someone recently post that and be like, this comic strip now totally makes sense. And it was like something to do with the cat turning into like Bhagwan Cat Niche or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But, but, but I mean, this was an en- enormous deal that, like, obviously totally obsessed America for a little while, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. It was really interesting because I was born in 1986. My brother Mac was born in 1991. So we were kind of born after this whole kind of saga happened. Um, and we grew up in Los Angeles, never even ever heard of the guru Bhagwan Rashnish or ha- had heard of Rashnish Param. And what we found out is the story is really well known in Oregon. But once you kind of get out of the and state I, of Oregon. I, I'm sorry, I should say that Rashnish Param is the city. That is they the built. utopia yeah. that they built. Yeah. And once you kind of get outside Oregon, the story's really been kind of forgotten. Or if it is remembered, it's kind of it's been misremembered. And so uh, we were really excited to like dive into this on a long format series and, and kind of bring it back into the mainstream. Yeah. It was strange as we were doing just initial research and reaching out and pulling together all this archive footage. It's almost like the story kept on getting bigger and bigger and bigger just in terms of its scope. Um, Because on one hand, I guess the Bhagwan his name was Bhagan Roshni. She was the Indian guru that he and his followers came to uh, Eastern Oregon. Um, he changed his name to Osho. And Osho today is such a well-known guru internationally, not so much in America. Right. So that was like, there was this kind you of internet. he's known internationally as, as just a, like an as Indian, symbol or As whatever. like an Indian mystic that people right. read his books. They put his quotes on Instagram and Facebook. And he's kind of a, a spiritual sage. And Osho is kind. like a, is a Japanese word. They're, they're, they were a very like syncretic. Yeah, I think that like there were so many scandals that came out of Oregon that the organization and the guru (laughs) himself was looking to like rebrand for like a fresh start, you know, Um, because I think that I think their history had always kind of followed them, which is certainly a part of when they came to Eastern Oregon and founded Roshnish Purim. A lot of their history from Pune, India followed them, too. So but it was yeah, it was just uh, the story just kind of 
just in Oregon just kept on getting bigger and bigger. It was like at first it was kind of this small town takeover where the cult had kind of took over Antelope, which was their neighboring town of 40 people. And they, then, they literally took it over and renamed it. The city of Roshnish. Right. Yeah. Um, it was only 40 people. So it was very easy for them to buy property that was for <laughs> sale, register voters. So, yeah, I mean, a little bit about the background of the story was there's these followers of this Indian guru named Bhagwan Roshnish. They come from Pune, India to Eastern Oregon. They buy a 64,000 acre ranch called the Big Muddy. They spent $120 million building this kind of utopian city. They built it in a part of Eastern Oregon that was a huge cultural divide with their neighbors. Uh, their neighbors, by and large, conservative uh, evangelical Christian cowboys. These are pioneer folks. These are the, that, that that were of the local town. 1984, county elections come around and the Roshanishis kind of hatch a plan to bus in 5,000 homeless people to try and take over the county. And then they put salmonella in and 10 salad bars in the Dallas restaurant and 750 people get ill with salmonella. So that's mostly what it's known as in Oregon. I think what we are interested in doing is telling this as this long six part documentary series where you could really kind of dive into a little bit more of the complexities of the story and hear from the members themselves about why they felt like they did these things that they were probably that they feel they were pushed to do. Yeah. I mean, I, that that's, that's the thing. So like, you know, and, and I, I, I love the way that you guys structured this thing, I have to say that, you know, at many points throughout, and I'm sure it was true for you interviewing these people, like I, I was struck by the sense that this group, this, you know, I mean, we're, we call it a cult. I mean, it certainly has all the elements of what we right. think of as a, as a cult. Very much so. um, and it evolved into something very sinister in large part um, due to the leadership yeah. of Ma'anand Sheila, uh, who ran the place in lieu mm. of yeah. Bhagwan. But I was struck repeatedly by how happy the people seemed to be during the periods of time when their community was not collapsing, how to a certain extent they had found a kind of communal heaven on earth, at least for a while. Yeah. I mean, when we first started doing research, everyone we talked to, we talked to federal officials and locals in Oregon, and they would always talk about this Rosh Niche movement as these are brainwashed people. These are people that are pure evil. Um, they're, you know, they're very sinister. And when we got to know a lot of these members of this community, it quickly became clear just really like how intelligent and thoughtful these people were. And everyone kind of had their own reasons for joining this religious movement. And most of them were highly successful, uh, reached the pinnacle of their careers, and then found that you know success didn't quite fulfill them the way they thought it would be. And so they kind of set out on this epic journey to create their own community from scratch, to really create their own happiness. And you know they they were kind of on the forefront of like sustainable organic farming, solar energy, um, you know, working with wildlife to bring back. And so they're they're really like ahead of their time in a lot of ways in this commune that they were building. And yeah, early on we wanted to show that for a while this was a functioning utopia. This was a self-sustaining utopia that was working. And while most cults kind of implode from the inside, this was really a story of external pressure that was kind of put on this group that they believe forced them to lash out and ultimately ended up, you know, in destruction of the commune. 
Yeah, I mean, so there was there was misunderstanding from the from the nearby town. What would you say was sort of the inciting incident? Yeah, I think there was a couple things, but I think that um, Manan Sheila, who was the personal secretary of the guru, but really what that means is like she was kind of pretty much the CEO, the right hand that kind of ran the organization. When Bhagwan came to America, he took a four-year public vow of silence, and he kind of retreats and steps back. And um, she's and the, fierce. Like, and she's, she's very fierce, and yeah. Fierce, like, it's yeah. like, you know, when push came to shove, <laughs> Sheila could shove, and she shoved harder than anyone else in the state. And I think that what was interesting is, I think Sheila just felt like she had bought this 64,000-acre ranch for 4 to $5 million in the middle of nowhere. It's 19 miles away from the nearest town, which is only 40 people. And I think Sheila just felt like we can do whatever we want out here. And so she kind of rapidly spends over $100 million of her organization's own money transforming this barren wasteland into their utopian ideal. And very quickly what happens is Oregon is one of the has one of the strictest land use laws in, in, in our country, like second to Hawaii. And so there's this really threatening land use lawsuit um, against the Roshnishis, where basically uh, environmental watchdog group Thousand Friends of Oregon comes in and kind of threatens to like almost demolish these buildings in court. You know, on that's the what basis mo- that they should be using its farmland. Exactly, and be- it's exclusive farmland right. land use only, and that you shouldn't have a city in the middle of nowhere. And I think Sheila felt very threatened very quickly, and she probably wasn't in a situation where she could retreat. Skipping ahead after the takeover of Antelope, they have a hotel in Portland that gets bombed. Um, which I think was probably first blood, so to speak. And I think that at that point, Sheila took the position that we're not going to shed any more blood in this fight. We are going to arm ourselves. We're going to protect ourselves. And that's when you see kind of the commune turn into a compound. So to speak. <laughs> and that, and it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like the, you know, war in Iraq and Afghanistan in so. the sense that, this first blood, this hotel bombing, like she didn't know, they didn't know exactly who, had had done it. Right? Yeah, it was very confusing. It was it was a very confusing time. Information didn't work out that, and I think that they. So uh, it we, kind of becomes a pretext. Exactly, for a war, and it's like, know, like I think that regardless of who did it, I don't think that would have changed Sheila's reaction. <laughs> you know, I think that right. she, for better or worse, was going to use this in some way to arm herself up. And I mean. Bhagwan's philosophy that Sheila always talked about was like, you know, we're not Buddhists, we're not Hindus, we're not Christians, we don't turn the other cheek. If you come after us, like, we're going to come after you twice as hard. I think it's kind of one of the tragic elements of this story, though, because you go from watching this peace-loving spiritual group, and then you slowly see them become radicalized through the political pressures, through what they perceive to be religious persecution, and then ultimately violence when their hotel is bombed. And so it's a really interesting process watching this pacifist group arm themselves with assault rifles and, you know, use them to protect themselves. And I mean, that's just the beginning. I mean, there's kind of conspiracies to assassinate political appointees. Um, There's an attempted murder on the ranch. And one of the most interesting things to us was that this was actually a Roshnishi that told us this. And in our experience, we interviewed a lot of a lot of Roshnishis, or they call themselves sannyasins. We interviewed a lot of sannyasins that we didn't interview for the series, but just on research and background and basis. And almost a lot of them would talk about this dual-edged sword of what they considered surrender and devotion. And these were people that believed in the idea of raising your consciousness, walking a path of enlightenment that you could maybe reach enlightenment in your life. And through that, they thought surrender, devotion was dropping the ego, these were kind of obstacles or things that they needed to do to reach that kind of enlightenment. But they're very self-aware. They're very aware of the fact that surrender and devotion can easily be manipulated. And they're and, and they would be the first to tell you that like there were people in our group that were uh, 
either manipulated or their devotion was their own downfall to where they did things that, you know, they ought not to do. Do you think, had Ma'anand Sheila not come along, right? Do you think, first of all, do you buy that the Bhagwan didn't know what was going on? Yeah, like she, a, there, there are a really, number of things sure. that she, Absolutely. number of it's criminal things question. that she did. Yeah. Yeah. And, There's and, a real fraction, like with fracture within the community of those that believe Sheila acted on her own accord. And then there's some who believe there's no way that the guru couldn't have known what was going on. And what makes it complicated is the guru did take this four and a half year vow of silence where he removed himself from public life, pushed Sheila forward to become the face of this group. You know, was he talking to her? He was talking. He so was they would have day, nightly right? meetings yeah. and, you know, obviously like things like when they were busing in th thousands of homeless people to take over the county elections. Which let's return to that because yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> right. He, he obviously had to have been aware of that. You know, I think that he was pushing Sheila to be very provocative. Um, when we talk to Sheila, she feels very much so that, you know, her job was to kind of fall on the sword, take all the blame for this group. And she wasn't willing to tell us what did the Bogwan know? What was she doing? Um, she was very closed about that. But as far as just the criminality, it's really interesting because Sheila wiretapped the guru's house at the end. And there's these 10,000 tapes that of these recordings that were made that the FBI has that supposedly has information on what were they discussing at oh, night okay. in their meetings. You know, they're, they're, we filed a Freedom in, of Information okay. Act to release them, but the, the federal government refuses to release them because the participants did not know that they were being recorded on these tapes. So somewhere these tapes exist and hopefully someday the government will release them and we'll know what really happened. Because going back to this, you know, the sort of how tragic this whole thing yeah. is, and it is tragic in so many ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, that Australian woman, Jane, Jane, mm -hmm. yeah, who who essentially just follows directives from Anand Sheila sure. and ends up becoming a would be murderer. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so unfortunate to see so much hope mm -hmm. lead to so much disillusionment. But one wonders, I mean, you just can't help wondering. I mean, it's a very American aspiration, sure. this very idea so. to no to transform yourself sure. to live a different kind of life mm -hmm. than has ever been lived Absolutely. before i mean that's what the country was yeah. founded on in a sense and you can't help wondering like yeah. was there a way that something like this could have worked right. or are the well, seeds of its that's own why destruction I think it's so fascinating because when we did a lot of research we got to see how similar these two communities actually were when you looked at antelope and you looked at roshanish Purim and antelope was this frontiers town um where they built their own community they built their church right in the middle of the town they had their own school where they teach christianity um and then you see the roshanishis were really doing the same thing this idea of building your own american dream and um kind of not being reliant on other people and they both almost had these libertarian philosophies of being self-sustaining not wanting the outside world not wanting government help and right. it was really interesting how similar the, these two groups were but i think just culturally at the time it was just so they just couldn't see that you know well i mean yeah the sticking points are a couple of things right so the Rajneeshis are libertarian, but they're libertarian communitarian, Correct. right? So. Yeah. Um, and that, of course, raises all kinds of specters sure. of communism Absolutely. and socialism Absolutely. for yeah, Americans. Yeah. And then there's the sexual thing, which Absolutely. is like a real sticking point. Right. Yeah, for <laughs> yeah. sure. So, so they yeah. have essentially yeah. open sexuality. Right. They have open marriages. Right. And then there's some footage that comes out of 
some est like right. psychological yeah. kind right. of counter purging group, group that they have, therapy, where, yeah. where they're all just kind right. of rolling around. Well, it's really naked. interesting because yeah. like the press would always like label them the sex cult, the sex cult, <laughs> and then you would talk to them and they'd be like, "Well, we kind of just like didn't believe in monogamy, you know," and like right. you realize there wasn't anything too crazy going on, but they did have these encounter therapy groups that they run out of India based on primal scream therapy and to someone who doesn't know what's going on it looks absolutely bananas you know i mean it's people naked beating the crap out of each other and then you know, withering around naked on the floor and then dancing afterwards to disco music to let it all out, you know? And when you don't know what's going on, it's absolutely insane. But for them, there was a method to this madness. I mean, these were therapy groups that were happening in Berkeley. There are therapy groups that are happening in Esalen. You know, encounter therapy was a popular therapy group amongst alternative therapies at the time. I don't, I'm not familiar with this term counter therapy, but is that encounter related? therapy? Encounter therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Is that related to what I want, like S? It, very much so. Yeah. Like rolfing and kind of this it was like Bhagwan in India had kind of kind of harnessed a couple of interesting different crossroads so to speak is like I think 1960s counterculturism it was at the very much the end of that but people were still kind of looking they were seeking and it was kind of the birth of what is collectively a little bit known as the human potential movement, which is Americans in this Eastern migration to India where they're on a a trip that they're seeking. They're on a spiritual trip and you have gurus popping up. But Guan was kind of the first guru or definitely the most successful guru to separate himself from other gurus who, who practiced and preached like rejection, rejection of wealth, rejection of sex, abstinence, like lose your desire. And that's how you reach enlightenment. But Guan was like only through wealth, only through sex. Can you reach enlightenment? (laughs) was very appealing to a lot of Americans as you can imagine they were like I like this guy Um, and he was really successful at that and built a pretty devoted following of people who were highly successful in America and Australia and other western countries I think Bhagwan what was interesting is he probably saw I my opinion was that I think he saw in India there's a lot of gurus in India America hasn't had a big guru yet and I think he saw America Mm. as kind of almost the major leagues where he could come because his ambition and his group's ambition was to quote-unquote transform the consciousness of the planet that was the ideals and ambitions they were playing at and so for us it was so interesting to trace how okay you start there how do you end up with almost all of your top leaders going to jail serving prison sentences for the largest biochemical terrorist attack in the United States history, attempted murders on the ranch, and the complete collapse of this dream that they had built in Oregon. Yeah, I mean, the biochemical terror attack, we should mention, um, <laughs> they were breeding E. coli bacteria. Salmonella. Salmonella, yeah. right. And, and basically, it was a two-pronged plan, which was to bus in homeless people and then suppress the actual Wasco County voter turnout. And so they had- Bus in the homeless people to, to vote re- Sorry, to register Rajnishis, to vote. Yeah. To vo- 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 yes, exactly. They sent Greyhound buses to major cities all over America and basically recruited homeless people to come live on the ranch. And it was interesting because a lot of the homeless people were like, you know what, I fought in the Vietnam War. They were deeply resentful towards the country at the right. treatment that they had been given. And these people who wore red were reaching out a hand and saying, hop on board, you know, we'll give you shelter, we'll give you food, come be a part of our community. And so I think for a lot of homeless people, it was a very attractive, appealing offer. And a lot of homeless people did stay until the very end of the community and felt like their lives had been turned around by this. They were definitely registered as voters and used as voters. There's no doubt that, that there's an exploitative nature sure. to the Roshni's sure. plan. Which was legal, though. There yeah, was, was nothing it, illegal about it was what very, they were doing. I mean, you could see it. You could see it as a reasonable exchange if Sheila had not 
reacted the way that she did oh, absolutely right. when yeah. things first of all they ought to have predicted that there might be some homeless right. people who yeah. had psychological issues or would become uh, well, violent this was right when reagan defunded all the mental institutions right. and so, so there's like a mental flood yeah, of was... mentally ill homeless people just pouring onto the streets and obviously either through naivety or yeah. whatever did I mean, not what have really the foresight to see that this could turn into an issue bringing in five thousand homeless people you know, and they only had about 2,500 sannyasin. So there was two homeless people to every sannyasin in this kind of powder keg in Eastern Oregon. And what was really <laughs> interesting is as we talked to just your kind of everyday Roshnishis on the ranch that weren't in leadership positions, a lot of them see these buses rolling by of homeless people coming into the ranch. And I think that they they empathize with these people. But they, I mean, what they told me was like, listen, we started out as like yoga meditators trying to raise our consciousness in the, in the Oregon desert. And now we've become a homeless shelter. And so I think even for them, they realize we're so off path mm. what our original intention was that even uh, i do think quite a few sannyasins saw this as like this could be the beginning of the end or at least in hindsight when they look back they refer to it as the beginning of the end but so yeah that was one plan to to, to register voters bolster numbers the other plan was to suppress wasco county voters and so what they did was they took salmonella and they sprinkled it into the salad bars of 10 different restaurants in the Dalles, Oregon, which was the county seat of Wasco County. Right. And 750 people eat and get salmonella poisoning. And so it's known as the largest biochemical terrorist attack in United States history. Is that like a meaningful number toward the vote? It was, um, there was about 12,000 registered voters okay. in Wasco County. But what I found really interesting about this whole election plan was when the government suspended the right to vote. And I think we did yeah. research and that was really, That's we couldn't crazy. really find another example of any time ever in the history of America that this had happened. And it was let's, just, let's clarify for the listeners yeah. that this is like in response to their understanding that the homeless right. people So just to recruited. step back, yeah. Oregon had like the most liberal voting laws at the time, which only required 21 days of residency in the state to be allowed to vote. So the Roshanish commune knew that if we bring in homeless people and they live here for 21 days, they have the right to vote. And the Secretary of State of Oregon at the time believed that this was, quote unquote, uh, election fraud and basically suspended the right for all new voter registrations at the time. Kind they ended on. up having to go through a panel and do an interview to be allowed to vote. It gets really complex. Well, they suspended the right on all sides. But the fact of the matter is, is like all all new registrations were coming from the Roshnishis. It wasn't like there were these new voter registrations coming from the Wasco side. So right. while it might look kind of fair and balanced and objective, because it's like, hey, we're just spending the right for anyone right. that wants it to come into the county. It was clearly like it was interesting. I mean, like Max said, a lot of these were Vietnam War vets who had fought for our country, found this quid pro quo situation in Oregon and living in this commune, and were now being told that they weren't allowed to vote, which to me was almost one of the most shocking elements of this entire story. It's totally shocking. When scene, it, when my, my, my wife's an attorney, and when yeah. we were watching, we were both like... like it's what? crazy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, well, I tell I, Mac and I spoke this, but you expect the Roshnishis to kind of bend the laws to win and you expect the Eastern Oregonians to use the law to their advantage. But when the government doesn't play by its own rules and changes at the last moment to suit them so that their people can stay in power. Right, especially in favor, as we were talking about, <laughs> yeah. of a demographic that absolutely. is liberty focused. Absolutely. You know, that, like, I mean, much. that's why right. the law is so well, liberal. It shows how so, fragile our democracy really is that, like, you know, we like to think think that we have these really strong American institutions that are unbreakable. But, you know, when pressure's put on these institutions, it's amazing to see how those in power respond sometimes. So there are a couple of people who you, I think, very wisely chose to 
spend a lot of time with. One is the attorney, I'm forgetting Naran. his name. Naran. Naran. He's amazing, incredibly mm-hmm. articulate, yeah. very fiercely smart, yeah. totally partisan to sure. the sannyasin very much so. movement, but extremely convincing. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm sure he was a killer attorney. He was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just a real brilliant mind. And I think at the time, I mean, before he joined the Rush movement, he was known as this really like hot shot up and coming lawyer in Los Angeles yeah. um, and really was a top legal mind. And I think this group was incredibly lucky to have someone with this kind of brain power fighting for them. So the, And then you have Anand Sheila. And you guys, you spent a lot of time with her in Switzerland. She's in Meisprock, Switzerland, which is like a little village about an hour outside Zurich. And you know, we went to visit her, I think, two or three different times before we even interviewed her and just spent time getting to know her and getting to know her background and what she does now. And we ended up interviewing her for five days, about four hours every day and did about 20 hours of interviews with her. I think I want to ask the the vaguest possible sure. question, right? I mean, she is, to a certain extent, an international criminal sure, yeah. and and you know, from an armchair psychology point of view, maybe something of a sociopath. Right. What was it like getting to know her, talking to her, trying to get what you wanted for the film? For sure. yeah, yeah, it was it was really interesting. Like I mentioned earlier, when we did our pre-interviews, they referred to Sheila as pure evil. And so we were, of course, a little timid or a little nervous whenever you're kind of walking in that situation and meeting someone who she, you know, she pled guilty to these kind of uh, uh, horrific yeah, <laughs> criminal acts. And so, but when we first met her, the first thing that we were kind of just like, surprised by is how small she is she's really tiny but she's so she has this larger than life persona in the archive where she's provocative she's foul mouthed she cusses she doesn't really take crap from anyone yeah, i thought she'd be six foot eight <laughs> <laughs> um but, but when we go. met her like you first realized like she's incredibly smart she's really charming you know she's lived this really interesting life and when you get to know her family members and her friends and the patients that she now takes care of you realize that like this was a person who felt like she was protecting her commune, protecting her master, protecting her family. And you start to realize it's not as black and white as just saying, oh, this is a psychopath that just committed these random crimes. There so was, in that context, she could become that person, but in her life now, she's not that person. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's interesting. I, mean, I just got the sense that like she wasn't someone that was like killing cats when she was a kid, you know? And I think that, I don't think, I, I think it's even fair to say that I don't think Sheila or other Roshnishis in general came to the United States with the intention for to poison people and attempted murders on the ranch and all of that. Right. I think Sheila felt like, yeah, she had a, a side of the story that she wanted to tell. Um, I think at times Sheila is reliable and unreliable in the series. I think that's, I think a lot of people are in the series. I think almost everyone at times, like all human beings exposed, is that they have bias or prejudice or that they have a very strong perspective on a set of events. And as documentary filmmakers, we were really excited to capture a lot of different perceptions of the same event of Roshni's Purim. With Sheila, it was fascinating. I mean, obviously, as a filmmaker, you're thankful when someone sits down and gives you five days of their life and allows you to kind of is an open book and allows you to ask any questions you kind of want. But yeah, I think that Sheila felt a a couple things. I think she felt like America. I think she felt like she should have been given the right to do whatever she wanted on her land. That was so far out in the middle of nowhere. Right. Um, I think that she felt that it was her responsibility to enact Bhagwan's vision. And I think that in India, there's this deep tradition of gurus that have right hands. And these right hands are... She's the sword hand. She's the sword hand, exactly, like the fighter. And so I think that it was duty, responsibility. I think Sheila is very open that one of the things that she was cagey about 
a little bit is whether she could have pled up and gotten flipped on the guru and, you know, and, and, and maybe gotten her own prison time down, mm. whether she had information or not. And I mean, her reaction was like, never in my life would I ever even consider doing that. Like that is just not the role and tradition of what I was supposed to do. So she has her own ideology that's conflicting and complex. And um, I think that as filmmakers, when we first started out on Wild Wild Country and the story of Roshni's Purim, the crimes and the criminality that happened is pretty well known and documented. So we weren't too interested in doing like a typical true crime documentary series, although I love those where it's like, what's the evidence? Who's innocent? Who's guilty? What actually happened? Right, Errol Morris. Exactly, or like Making a Murder. I mean, those are great series, but it's just for our story, it was like, that was pretty well known. Like people pled guilty to doing these things. They admitted to doing these things. They talked about it. It seemed like the work, especially with Sheila and other people was like, but how do they get to the point of that they did these things and their justifications and the counter arguments for why it happened? And that's where hopefully Wild Wild Country gets interesting. It, it does. And I think that, you know, that's something that we're increasingly interested in that and that accounts for the, the success of, you know, I'm in the podcast world. Right. So Serial, right. you know, Serial is also like, did he do it or didn't did he? he? But, right. but primarily it's about the ambiguity yes. and the uncertainty. Very of, much so. Uh, and, yeah. and then I heard S-Town was S-Town, similar. Yeah, to so, like a yeah, wild, wild country yeah, in a sense wait, where wait, it's like a little bit I think OJ Made in America as a documentary series was very much like that I mean I, that was one of my favorite right. things I've seen in a long like, long you know time. the murder you know the crime but it's about peeling back the social layers the political layers and, and kind was, of diving in it was yeah. interesting we've gotten a tremendous praise on this series which we're so grateful for I do I have like gotten some things where it's like I guess I just didn't quite feel the need to condemn attempted murders and poisonings because I feel like we know those things are wrong like I don't oh, you've gotten I, some pushback I, 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 where people are like, like these like, are monsters yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. you know and it's like uh, of course of course there these acts are monstrous and of course what these people did like these acts are evil and like it, it would take a totally strange type of mind to do some of these things but like, Wild Wild Country is intended for a mature thinking audience yeah, that yeah. can is a safe place to get past that and then look at like how people do what they do I mean Mindhunter had come out on Netflix and it was very much about that it was <laughs> You know, these people that had committed awful, atrocious things, but now you're going to peel back the layers to listen to them. And I think that, like Chap said earlier, in Wild Wild Country, our experience with everyone that we talked to was that they're very multidimensional. They're three-dimensional people that are human beings that are fiercely intelligent. Mm. We would talk to Rosh Nishis about antelopians, and they would call, they'd say, oh, these people are just redneck bigots. And we go out to Antelope and get to meet these people, and we found, like, well, they they had legitimate complaints, you know? Like, they would ask us questions of, like, do you know what it's like to try and raise a family and look out your window and see people dressed head to toe in red that are carrying semi-automatic weapons? <laughs> and I'd be like, ah, oh, that must be concerning. And then, but it was really interesting to hear antelopians talk about Rosh Nishis, because they would talk about these Rosh Nishis as these brainwashed cult members. But it was like, we had already gotten to know some of these people pretty well, right. and it wasn't quite our experience that they were hypnotized, brainwashed cult members, that they were free-thinking individuals. So it was just an interesting case where both sides, I think, just kind of saw the worst in each other and then used that to represent their group entirely with that. It's interesting the way we need to do that with people, you know, in order to kind of... um I don't know, in order to function instrumentally mm-hmm. in the world to say, okay, this person is absolutely a monster right. or yeah, I think to like good validate evil. our yeah. own sense of like right and wrong mm-hmm. or righteousness. Like we often like dehumanize those who see the world in a different way, you know? Yeah. What's interesting. I mean, yeah. And that's interesting that we, that, that it's necessary to take 
other people's lives so personally mm-hmm. you know Absolutely. i mean it's one thing if they're taking over your town sure. that's right another, but yeah when right. it gets to that point but right. you know like if they're just next door like, right because the taking over the town was in retaliation and they felt like they had to do this for their own survival and that's where it kind of gets complex but yeah it begs the question had these people just been left alone to kind of do their farming have their open marriages do their meditation practices would it have harmed anyone would it have harmed the followers would it have harmed the neighbors and, yeah what do you care yeah you know? yeah mm-hmm. Last question before we get to the other part of the show, and I'm sure you've been asked this before. Why are so many? Why are there so many brother directors? <laughs> like, what's up with that? We yeah. kind of thought about it. And <laughs> what we realized for us is like making documentaries is so hard. It requires so much research and just like technical stuff. And so just the division of labor like helps us a ton. Um, but we're a small team. You don't team. have to hire someone. Exactly, yeah. it's yeah. free labor, you know. And, yeah. and our wife is our producer. Wait, you're and getting then, paid on this. <laughs> I, I haven't gotten paid. <laughs> and then our older brother uh, Brocker does the music and so we're really like a small team and but just yeah the division of labor and I'm sorry you said our wife you have one wife I, oh my yes. god chat, please clarify this my wife please. <laughs> you, okay. she'll kill me um, yeah my wife produces and so I, it just uh, works out well no judgment no. If, if you guys have we're one wife, we didn't tell you we're on Shnishis. we're in the uh, open marriage type of thing we, we can't believe it I mean were you doing little puppet shows and it was, stuff no, when you were no, kids it was no not really it was it didn't happen until and we were on kind of almost different paths. I mean, oddly, like we were both sports fanatics growing up. And, okay. And and that was kind of our shared interest. But, you know, Chap grew to be 5'11", and I'm around the same height. <laughs> so for the NBA, it wasn't going to quite happen. But I was obsessed with nonfiction stories. I loved nonfiction books, and I was a history major. I went to UCLA. Okay. And I would see my professors just write these great books, but I felt like they weren't quite tapping into mainstream so much. And for me, I I was interested in doing pop culture type of analysis and writing. And Chap went to UCLA film school. So he was like more tried and true as like a filmmaker. But I think the line for making feature films, people wait and wait years to try and get an opportunity for someone to give them money to make their script. And it just never happens. And so we saw not just documentary, but we saw like archival documentary as Mm. something where we could both have a shared type of interest. Like he he edits, he shoots. I do a little bit more of the research. I do the interviews. Um, And it was just, it was just something we could actually do. And so we started in 2014 on a documentary called the battered bastards of baseball, which is about a minor league baseball team called the Portland Mavericks. And through that, because the archive footage, also Oregon, also Oregon. So well, that was what happened is we had licensed footage for the Portland Mavericks and this archivist said, what are you guys doing next? And I said, we didn't know. And he said, well, I have 525 raw umatic tapes on the most bizarre, crazy story that ever happened in Oregon. And I was like, that's a pretty good pitch. I'm interested. I'm interested in what this story is. And then we digitized the footage and, you know, our heads blew off. Well, uh, let's do a 180-degree turn. This is the second part of the show where we watch surprise clips from Big Things interview archives, and we'll see where the conversation goes from there. Perfect. I'm excited. Cool. Fun. So this is Amy Chua. Um, She's the author of Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother and Political Tribes, and she's a professor of law, and the video is called Revenge of the Tribes, How the American Empire Could Fall. great example of group blindness in the United States is when Woodrow Wilson said in 1915 in a very famous speech, there are no groups in America. America doesn't consist of groups. And if you continue to think of yourself as belonging to a smaller group, you're not American. 
It's astonishing that he could say this, these universalist tones, at a time when Native Americans were largely still denied citizenship, Mexican Americans were still being lynched, Asian Americans were barred from owning land, and African Americans were being subjected to violence and degradation virtually every day. And yet he was saying, we don't have any groups here. So that's an example of almost willful blindness to groups. And sometimes this kind of universalist rhetoric, oh, we're all just one people, is a way of hiding a lot of inequality and smaller kinds of group oppression. So if you look at a country like Libya, they're actually a little bit like the United States. That is, they are a wildly multi-ethnic nation. The problem is they don't have a strong enough overarching national identity to hold it together. And the goal is a group, or a country in this case, that has, on the one hand, a very strong overarching national identity. We're Americans. But importantly, at the same time, allows individual, subgroup, and tribal identities to flourish. You should be a country where you can say, I'm Irish American or I'm Libyan American, and yet be intensely patriotic at the same time. So I'm Muslim American, I'm Chinese American, I'm Nigerian American. So at its best in America, there should be a certain amount of porousness and fluidity across tribes. It's when tribalism gets really entrenched that things can get very dangerous. And countries, Western democracies at their best, or just any democracies, are when people have cross-cutting group identities. So it's like, okay, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican, but I'm also Asian American or African American or straight or gay, wealthy or not wealthy, just different ways of dividing yourself so that you don't get entrenched in just two terrible tribes. It's sort of like if I'm talking about sports, I'm with you. But if I'm talking about food preferences, I'm with you. And you could have different groups that neutralize each other. I do think it's very interesting, relevant to what's happening now, especially we could kind of live in an, in an age of identity politics and, right. and people are gravitating towards groups that either look like them, they sound like them, or they have the same belief systems of them, the same faiths. And it's clear that we do this because we feel safety and comfort when we're surrounded by those who we feel see the world the same way we do or right. have shared the same lived experiences that we have. And so... We're sort of biologically wired. We're, we're survivalists. I think there's something just deep in our DNA that we know to survive. Like we have to have our pack. We have to have our tribe. And I think that's always going to be there. Um, what I found fascinating about that is can that go too far? Can you get so far lost in your tribe where it becomes impossible to see another view, another person's perception, see through life through another lens? And it's just, I don't think anyone has the right answer for that, but I think it's just an important topic to be dis to be discussed and, and and you know thought about. Yeah. yeah. And for me, I got 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 a couple thoughts, but one just with since we I were at an interesting point in our time in our lives right now, my brother and I, where it's like we're three weeks out from our doc series getting launched on Netflix. So for the first time, we're getting reception and feedback on Wild Wild Country. And one of the things that I'm actually sincerely most proud about about the series is how many people have talked to me about. For better or worse, they took one position earlier in the series and 
15, 20 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half later, are then questioning that position. And I don't care what position they took, and I don't care what position they end up on, but just the fact of questioning and using critical thinking to critique yourself, which is hard to do. It's hard to take a position on something and then be honest with yourself and look in the mirror and be like, okay, I think we all make snap decisions and snap judgments and have a little bit of knee-jerk reaction, but then questioning that later I think is something that at times I feel like our country, our politics are bankrupt of that. It's like the first position you take is the right position you take. And the other thing that kind of reminded me of that was I was just, this stayed with me recently, but I was just reading Bill Gates do a Reddit AMA. And one of his questions, I think one, I'm paraphrasing, but one of the questions was like, is there anything about the invention of the internet, that pre-internet that you kind of like misjudged or overestimated, underestimated? And he said, pre-internet, me and my friends always thought that like the internet would be the democratization of information right. and that it would like bring people together in discourse and dialogue. And he's like, it's shown me that it's actually kind of created tribalism in some ways, that it's like actually deepened these divisions. But what he said, that, that wasn't so interesting. It was this follow-up, which he was like, when you have a big tool that comes into a generation like the internet, sometimes it's often not the first generation that's going to learn how to most effectively use that tool. It will be the second generation or the third generation. And so it's like, for me, it's like, I think we're kind of among the first generation to really have the internet at our disposal in our daily lives since the time we were children. Mm. Um, mm. Hopefully we can use the internet as a tool of democratization of information. You look at something like mustard gas or something that was used in World War One. Like we're at a point in today's society where for the most part, not all the time, but we're not using, you know, chemical gas <laughs> right. to kill our enemies. Like right. it took a, it took it took two or three generations to get to a point where we have a Geneva Convention that ho- mostly prevents that from happening. Um, I'm hoping with the internet and the way that we can kind of lessen these deep divides won't necessarily be maybe our age group, but our children, their children, hopefully. And that's that's a sentiment and an idea that I've heard from. A number of people, you know, a decade or two younger than yeah. myself who are like, we're growing, we grew up in this thing. With social we, media. As yeah, as like, we, you know, we're attached to the phones, we're, yeah. et cetera. And we're only now starting to understand what it is. The consequences sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Just the tool, understanding the tool for benefits and consequences all around. Right. And, 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 and I guess in an interesting way, it reveals us to ourselves on a scale that we've never seen before because I think everyone at this point is at least somewhat aware of the idea of cultural and political bubbles, sure. which they might yeah. not have been exactly. before. Exactly. We're getting Absolutely. there, I think. Yeah, and just one last thing is, which I really thought was interesting, that was this kind of idea of like national identity. Like, what is an American? What does it mean right. to be an American? And in our story, it was really fascinating that what we found out is it's usually the groups in the majority that like to define what is America and what is an American. And it's always these minority groups that come up and say, well, hey, I have a little bit of a different view of what is what it means to be an American. And it's always that conflict that's really interesting. And when this new group spiritual community moved into Eastern Oregon right. saying, hey, a lot of us were born in America too. This is our vision of what we think is great about America. You know, the larger majority in Oregon who had been there for longer was saying, no, you know, we're American. This is what we want America to be. Right. And so I think that conflict is is always going to be there, but it's a really fascinating. In wild, one. wild country, the constitution was just used by both sides as a sword and a shield. I mean, the concept of America, you know, in, 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 in origin, it's a, it's a land of tolerance. It, yeah. it starts as a land of 
tolerant difference. Or people I mean, who you felt have persecuted religiously too. Right. <laughs> I mean, at least that's the at least that's the narrative we're told. Right. Right. Yeah. And but I, I suppose intolerance was there from the beginning as right. well. You had the you know the the original Puritan groups, and then For you sure. have like the Quakers Absolutely. splitting off from yeah. them. You have yeah. this loyalty to identity, and then this question of yeah, what? How do we all live together? Sure. Always there. Well, it's really complex because. Like I'm personally the philosophy of like live and let live, like let people do what they want to do. And but you know sometimes you know liberals find themselves in a tough spot because sometimes you do have to draw a line. And I think that's what this story is really fascinating. Like we want to be open minded, we want to allow groups, but at what point if groups are abusing these this leniency or this you know openness that yeah. we're affording, sometimes you have to say this this is my line and it's now been crossed. Yeah, well, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying in the beginning of the show, Very like. Much. So. Like your your right to own a gun may impinge on my oh, right absolutely. to be alive. You know, <laughs> exactly. Like, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And then no one knows where that line is. But hopefully this show asks people to do some critical thinking to find out like where is my tolerance level for what's best for our nation. You know. And what's interesting is like I one person was like talking about Wild Wild Country, and I remember in the interviews asking this question too, which is at what point does a government is a government crackdown justified? Where mm. it's like it's a government crackdown and laws and justice be damned. Like there's a big problem out here and it's about cutting the cancer out of this state that is the Roshnish. Right, I mean, right, 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 right. And it's like what Whatever we got to do to do it, we'll do it. And obviously on surface, that sounds so corrupt. But then I think that it is interesting to peel that back and look and see, like, are government crackdowns ever justified? Or Amy Chua, I think, would say that we are biologically wired for, for tribalism. And there's a certain extent to which that sense of cozy, comfortable identity right. is, like, endemic to us sure. and we need it that that's somehow essential sure. to what it means right. to be human. But I guess that that is the question. Like, does the vision of universal oneness make any sense? Right. Like, if the no, Rajneeshis, like, took it, over the entire right, yeah. world right. somehow. Practic- or, yeah. Which, well, that's which, what I'm saying. Because I'm a very individual yeah. person. I'm not yeah. someone who belongs to, like, a, a faith-based group or, you know, like, I don't want to wear all red, you know? like <laughs> right. So at what point, if they are then trying to take over the state or what's the next step where is the line between where you're impeding on someone else's you know right to, to freedom is is really difficult yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. it was fa- and i think that like speaking to that f- sense of tribalism or family like, in our experience so many Rashnishis talked about when Bhagwan took a vow of silence, it actually became less about their devotion to Bhagwan as he would drive by in a Rolls Royce every day. And more like, at least what I heard from them is like, they were talking about what it meant to, you know, their their logo was, what was their slogan? Uh, Welcome home. Welcome home. And are like, there was no strangers in Roshni's perm. And I believe that in the footage that I saw, at least, I mean, it looked like if you wore red and put on a mala and went to Roshni's perm, you were accepted by that community as a part of that family. So it wasn't so important to them. It it was just, it, it, it was a little bit, it was just like, like hard as a filmmaker to intellectualize their devotion to Bhagwan. Um, I think they loved him like, like, like I guess you'd love a family member, so to speak. But And we weren't so interested in diving in or trying to pick apart exactly how they felt about him. And at some point, you just took their word for it, that if they said this is how they felt towards the man, you accepted he that. He kind of gave them permission it, it, to I, that's, live that's in That's a great way. point, like, exactly. Yeah. He, he was a, a conduit for that. And like what they felt apart was like a lot of, these people had problems with family. Like I work with my brother. I, our other brother does our music. I've always 
felt a part of a, deep, a big part of my family. They're a big part of my life. Um, I work with them and I feel accepted by them and they bring a lot of joy in my life. I could imagine if I didn't have that, <laughs> if that was a big empty void in my stomach that I would do things to try and fill that. And I think that that's normal, natural. And I think that's actually conducive good behavior. I think a lot of people, when they get depressed, they'll either drugs or alcohol, or they'll do other things to fill that void. The Roshanishis, I felt like they were like, let's go build this utopia in paradise. Yeah. Or make a paradise of our own, which is a- admirable I, 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 at first, you know? And then it becomes darker and darker and darker as the story I, progresses. This sounds cliche, but talking about the tribalism is like, yes, that's like inherent in us. And then the first thing that happens, and I know this sounds cliche, is like when we when we come across someone that's different or that we don't understand, the first instinct is fear. And I think that's also right. just wired in us. Like, I don't think you're a bad person because your first instinct is to go, whoa, wait, it, what is this? I don't understand. question it. is what you do next. That, like, yeah. It's always the second step. And that's where like I just really think like America has to do a lot of work is like moving beyond that fear. Not that you need to totally suppress it because we have to be alert. We have to be know what's going on. But hopefully there's a second stage to want to understand a little bit better, um, see someone else's perspective a little bit more and before you start making all of your decisions. And, and I think that that understanding, I think that understanding and that sort of tolerance mm-hmm. of human nature itself is something that is necessary if any kind of communication is going to happen. And it was very much lacking mm-hmm. here. I mean, when, uh, you know, yeah. Manan's Sheila comes out of the gate, like you guys are a bunch of bigoted is, right. idiots, Toxic you know, communication. What, whatever, yeah. you know, immediately there. Yeah. That, the, 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 that's it. I mean, yeah. there's no, it's yeah. over at that yeah. point. And so how can you not understand that if you buy 40,000 acres, 60,000 yeah, acres and bring how many people? Yeah. 5,000. 5,000 yeah. people living yeah. a very different lifestyle yeah. right. next to some people that they might react yeah. weirdly, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, that was so interesting is because I think a lot of people before us or just the way that the story has been talked about focuses on the illegality of the crimes, which is natural. That's a big part of why we were drawn to it. But to me, like, I guess what was terrifying wasn't so much the the the, the, shit, the stuff that's totally illegal it's like the attempted murders or the poisoning you can say shit it, okay sorry <laughs> it wasn't all that shit it was like how it was how it was all the legal stuff they were allowed to do where it's like they incorporated as their own city and then they get to send members of their own community to the Oregon State Police Academy and they have a legitimate police, police department force, yeah. and they and that allows them semi-automatic AK-47 weapons that they get to practice on their shooting range for it's actually legal to bust in 5,000 homeless people and try mm. and take over the county. It's actually legal to buy property in Antelope and take right. over the town. I mean, it was stuff like that that was actually, to me, more interesting because I think that the Roshanishis for a long time felt like we're following the letter of the law here yeah. and we're just exercising our constitutional political power like any other group does. Um, and I think when church state got brought up, they were like, take a look at Utah. I mean, are you kidding me? Like Mormonism, Mormons in Salt Lake City run that town. Uh, Catholics in Boston. I mean, I think that they felt like they had been persecuted at that point. This show is a little bit of a warning sign to what happens when two groups just become so totally entrenched and refuse to like to, to acquiesce or refuse to compromise on anything. I think let's, let's see what the second and final clip is. And uh, this this was cool. Yeah. Okay. So this one is Ariel Levy. She's a staff writer at the New Yorker. Um, It's called periods, miscarriage and menopause. Why is animalistic womanhood taboo? When I was 38, um, I accepted an assignment in Mongolia. And I'd been writing stories for The New Yorker and before that New York Magazine for 
20 years. And this was going to be the last adventure like this for a while because I was about to start on another kind of adventure. I was five months pregnant and I was about to have a new kind of life. Um, and I wasn't um, worried about it. My doctor had said it was fine to fly until the third trimester. And I just, you know, I was not concerned. But the second night I was in Mongolia, I went to, I went into labor in my hotel room and um, I gave birth. And for 10 minutes, I was somebody's mother. And when I got home from Mongolia, I was so sad I could barely breathe. And, you know, friends or women who knew what had happened to me would take one look at me and, and literally burst into tears. And I actually understand how that felt for them now, because now women come to my readings and things, and I see them, and I look at them, and I immediately know what they're gonna tell me. They have a particular kind of look. They just look blown apart. And I think it's something, the reason I wrote about it in this essay for The New Yorker called Thanksgiving in Mongolia was that I felt like, why doesn't anybody talk about this? This is an incredibly intense experience that a lot of women have. And when it happens to you, there's no literature about it. There's very little so you feel insane. You feel like a crazy person that you're having that level of grief for a baby who wasn't even quite a baby. And are you the only person who's having this reaction to this experience? But the answer is no. I mean, I, at this reading I gave from my book, The Rules Do Not Apply, last week in San Francisco, this lady raised her hand and she was like, you know, I have three children who are alive. I lost four babies. I'm 77 years old, and I miss every one of them. So I'll, I'll start with the obvious and unnecessary disclaimer that we are three men and, <laughs> and are not experts uh, on, on this topic. I wholeheartedly <laughs> co-sign that disclaimer. <laughs> and are probably about to say several very stupid things. Yeah. <laughs> that um, we know nothing about. <laughs> but um, my first thought was like Descartes is to blame. It's the mind-body separation in, in, in the West. But I think... It may actually start with misogyny. It may start with the fact that going way back to the totally. ancient ancestors, yeah. men who are often the ones who are telling the story and writing the culture yeah. are scared shitless of childbirth. I mean, yeah. childbirth yeah. is a very intense, experience. intense yeah. thing. And so no doubt, because they mm. could get away from it, oh, men yeah. did like, very quickly. I, yeah. feel I think what I found really interesting about that too was also, was also talking about grief. And what was really interesting, just to tie it into our series a little bit, is a lot of people that did join this movement uh -huh. had gone through some circumstance in their life. Maybe it wasn't losing a child, but it was some traumatic event, a lot of them, and felt like they didn't have the space or the awareness to talk about these issues. Okay. And, you know, they joined this movement. They found this spiritual guru. They found this community where they felt more open to these sorts of things to talk about, you know? Grief that you don't have a place to express. Exactly. Or, yeah. and, and especially and, in America, I think that that's just so common. We don't know really how to talk about it. We get uncomfortable. We don't know how to deal with it. And now, obviously, like, therapy is becoming much more common. It's not so taboo like it was 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, I mean, in America... 
on the one hand, it's about this kind of like ridiculous positivity and sure. this always <laughs> upward looking thing sure. you know, that we, we just don't want to deal with anything negative. Sure. And the body, which gets sick and yeah. dies mm-hmm. and menstruates and yeah. makes babies, like that you know, is the repository therefore of maybe a lot of things yeah. we don't want to like, talk about. It's probably more convenient and easier to ignore on a day-to-day basis. The crazy pill thing that she was talking about, where it's like, I feel after this happens, it's like, you feel like you're taking crazy pills or something. Cause no, there's not that much like discourse on it. No one talks about it openly. It's very taboo. It makes it, it's a it, defining... people act uncomfortable talking about it. There's like this like pop culture psychology, especially now that's sold like live in the moment. Everything's right. about living in the moment, you know? And I think that's really tough for people that go through traumatic experiences or go through grief, you know? It's like, that's not such an, an easily, an easy thing to do. And like, it's taboo to like think in the past or dwell in the past. But I think that's actually an important part of being human is like not forgetting your past and, and learning about well, it but and I coming think... to grips with it and, yeah. and talking about it with people. You know, I mean, I think I think living in the moment is I mean, this is this ties all of this together. I I, I think living in the moment is also living in the past. That is to say, when something happens like a miscarriage, Mm -hmm. it is a defining incident in your life. It is. I mean, three weeks later, a month later, a year later, it's still a part of the kind of like churning stuff of your consciousness. Absolutely. And so. I think the problem with living in the moment for a lot of us is that we don't really have a context in normal discourse with one another where we can do that comfortably. I mean, so the sannyasins create a community. I mean, one of the things about them, I mean, with their sexuality out in the open, with their kind of like raw, weird Mm -hmm. humanity out in the open is that like they are giving a safe space for their humanity. Absolutely. Right. It's a place where they can be themselves. Now, Ariel Levy comes back from Mongolia with carrying this with her. And there's just, uh, you know, she goes to a New Yorker meeting and maybe or maybe not she can bring that with her, you know. And like there's obviously a lot of differences that I feel like I should like make, which is like having a miscarriage is obviously not a choice that someone makes. We're joining a movement like Roshnish Purim is, you know, so it's a little bit different. But no, I do, but suffering yeah. in your life before For and sure. needing a community yeah. in which you can. Well, I talk think what you said, just like it. having the space to like live in that, you know, like yeah. I think we want we want people to get better and we just like, we want to ignore so much underneath the surface for our own comfort. And I just think we're like, we have to be, be a little bit more mature and, and give space for people to live what they're experiencing. Yeah, and this was kind of a, people have asked me like, well, why the red clothes and, and, and why all that? And there's kind of like some interesting answers, but one of them that I thought was interesting was this idea that, at least Bhagwan talked about this, and it was this idea that like putting on red clothes and putting on a mala and going into society is going to be very, very difficult for you. <laughs> and it's going to be difficult for you to tell your family this. And they called it devices, and devices are supposed to be these like external struggles that bring internal growth. There was this Eastern mystic named George Gurdjieff, and he would right. have these exercises where it's like you spend all day and you dig a hole with a shovel and your hands are bleeding. And then at the end of the day, he's going to say, fill the hole back up. And you're, that's supposed to be this device that you're like, what was the meaning of it all? And pushes and I, you to the limit. It pushes so you, you to the limit. Yeah, are, like, exactly. And one of the interesting things about the red clothing, which 
on a lot of it causes damage it can it, it can it can control people to become a part of one identity and there's 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 consequences to that but chap and i had an interesting conversation once about the red clothing and it was this idea of saying to the world and the people that we know oh we're filmmakers and now it's easier to do it because it's like we've had some success with it and it's it's not so, right but when you're 21 years old saying like oh, i'm a writer or i'm a painter or right. i'm an artist it's like it's a little bit of a hard thing to do at least where we came from we grew up in suburban and America, Los, like outside of Los Angeles, a lot of people were going to college and getting degrees and it was getting a job and working your way up a part of an established company. Right. And then just owning to the world, like, no, I'm a documentary filmmaker, even though I haven't made a documentary yet, was difficult for me to do a little bit. Um, and I think that for Sanyasins in a similar way, it was a little bit of that nudge where it's like, no, you put on the red clothes, you put on the mala. And you say, fuck you to the world. Like, I'm a sannyasin. <laughs> what we found is a lot of people that leave these movements or years later, they're filled with so much resent and regret for what they did. The interesting thing that we found is the majority of people that we interviewed did not have resent or regret for this spiritual movement and this experiment that they were a part of. They have love. They have deep love. And I think that there was this huge therapeutic element for what they did. And so to dismiss the whole experiment because, you know, this top group leadership, which consists of about 10 to 15 people, um, you know, who did some horrible things, that's not necessarily indicative of the entire community, I don't believe. And I think, and I, and and I, yeah, and I I guess what I want to say is that, like, I see, when I see the people in the town of Antelope and I see the, the sannyasins kind of at their best, I see this spectrum of openness to closeness yeah. on dealing with your own humanity. Yeah, I mean, sure. the people in that town, I mean, maybe they're dealing with it within their own families or sure. something, but yeah. I see a sort of tightness, a sort of you closeness. can't help but think there's a lot of repression yeah. in that culture. There. Yeah. And so, and, and I, I think, is. I think, you know, the sixties allowed Americans to experiment with the question of how far can we go in owning yeah. that publicly? Sure. And then we got a little shell shocked by yeah, stuff like, so. you know, Absolutely. Well, we kind of grouped them all together, too, because we talked about this was two years after Jonestown. But we get into the series like Jonestown was like based on like Christianity and this is Eastern mysticism. Like they're two totally different spiritual philosophies. But can these groups do good in the world? Like, can they be a force of good in the world? Like we always associate them with such horrible things. Or can we at least take or whether it's in the form of a group like this or can we take some of the principles that they're using? And like, is there something that we were looking for that we actually need in that? You know, because so many people would be like, oh, well, they're always laughing and smiling like that was a show for the camera but we uncovered some like personal super eight millimeter footage that sannyasins had given us that people didn't know that they were being filmed and like those people who were inside that community were like happy they like loved living Mm -hmm. there you know and i think it does say a lot of what they were able to find or what this community offered them that really i don't know gave them a sense of of purpose and fulfillment yeah because i mean you're only on this earth for so long right i mean if there's a way to be happy it's probably a a good thing as long as it's not killing anyone sure, or right. poisoning them. Yeah, exactly. Which is probably <laughs> one of the things that happened. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was like a wide variety of experiences in Rosh Purim, which is, I think, why we are interested in talking to someone like Naran, who is still a follower of Osho today. Someone mm. like Jane, who is totally willing to say that she was a part of a cult and that she felt like maybe, maybe she brainwashed herself or Sheila, who is, you know, kind of disavows the movement, but still feels a personal connection to Bhagwan. I mean, the truth right. is like there was 2,500 people that lived there. So there's 25 different hundred stories, stories. 
of what people liked. And we tried to capture them all. I mean, it was hard because at a certain point we felt like the story was so forgotten that we were almost kind of starting from scratch in some ways, you know. And it's weird, like, since it's come out, I always try to say, like, you know, we feel no ownership of this story. And if people want to run with what we, we – I mean, we built off some books that had been written in the past. And then we made our documentary series. And if they want to build off the work we've done or do something totally different, I, I would be the first person to hear a podcast or watch a documentary or read a book on Roshnish Purim because this needn't be the final it, oh word. yeah we yeah. told a story I mean yeah. it's like really it was a movement that came to America it was a religious movement that came to America and you're going to get a lot of different perspectives and stories and like I loved hearing them all our humans are eternally searching for for purpose. Like that's never going away. You know, right. like it's always going to be here. And so the future of America, there's going to continue to be groups and movements, and these things are going to continue to sprout up across America. And like we're going to just have to learn how we deal with them and 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 what freedoms they're given and and where how we all fit into this in this country. Absolutely. Way Brothers, um, I very much enjoyed speaking with you today. Thanks so much for coming awesome, on Jason. Think Again. Thanks, this man. was a really good conversation. It. Thank you so much. Cool. And that's another episode of Think Again. Next week, we leave the world of entertainment and before that, literature to return to the world of science with the very accomplished neuroscientist and philosopher Antonio Damasio. That'll be on the recorded podcast. Um, in real life, physically, I will be in Green Bay, Wisconsin on Saturday, April 21st. I'm going to be at Untitled Town Book and Author Festival doing the podcast live with graphic novelist Kristen Radke. So if any of you are anywhere near Green Bay, Wisconsin, please make the trip and, uh, and come support us. We'll be back next week with, as previously mentioned, something completely different.